0: it is a great joy and a remarkable privilege for Marcia and I to be with you all. So grateful for this opportunity to share with you. Grateful for your ministry locally and uh, throughout the world. It's been a privilege to get to know your rector. I've learned a lot about him in the last couple of days that I didn't know before. One thing I learned is that I dare not try to sing in a sermon. (laughs) Because apparently, he is a hard actor to follow. I'm still trying to sort out how the seating in this church works. I noticed at the first service, and the same for the second, that this side is a little more full than this side. And I just wanted to know how you knew this was my good side. That's a joke, I don't actually have a good side. (laughs) I want to talk about the best love story ever. I want to talk about issues for us as its storytellers. And finally, I want to focus on one audience for that story. The best love story ever. Well, I'm actually going to tell you three love stories to get there going from the ridiculous to the sublime, from the fictional to the true, from the all right to the greatest. The first one is the story of the Princess Bride, which many of you may know from the film or the book. Sort of a fairy tale comedy for those who don't know it. Interestingly enough, when it originally hit the theaters, it was not that well-received or that well-reviewed. I think it was because there was nothing remotely like it. But when it came out on VHS, I've just dated it significantly, (laughs) all of a sudden, it became a big hit. And there was at least one or two generations that could quote virtually all of it. For those of you who don't know the film, or those who don't recall at all, it's the story of Buttercup, who's in love with a farm boy named Wesley, who leaves her to make his fortune at sea. She's later kidnapped, dragged away to marry the wicked prince, whose desire is to kill her after the wedding, bring her into his dark kingdom and kill her. Wesley, after an unusual career at sea, which we won't go into, returns to rescue her but is tortured until he is mostly dead. Because of his true love for Buttercup, he is somehow resurrected. And with unlikely helpers, he storms the castle, eventually defeats the dark prince, and is reunited with Buttercup. Now, if you hear themes of the gospel in that story, it's no accident. Both C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, after him, point out that the gospel story is usually underneath all the best fairy tales. There's something in human nature that knows that that's a true story underneath. Well, the second love story is really more of a love story pattern the pattern of Jewish marriages at the time of Jesus. Now, for the women who were on the retreat with Marcia yesterday, she spoke about this as well, but that's all right. I believe in the redundant power of redundancy. <laughs> I might add, you see it in the scriptures all the time. After all, we have four Gospels and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, as well as the books of Samuel and, and the Kings. So here's the pattern of Jewish weddings in the time of Jesus. A man would go to another village, if he couldn't find a woman in his own village, to another village to find or meet his bride, the bride-to-be. Sometimes the marriage was arranged by the family. Sometimes he might have met her if he were working out of town. For example, Jews from Nazareth apparently seem to have been the builders of the nearby city of Sepphoris, constant migrant worker uh, line to that town. The couple would become betrothed, which might be called a covenant engagement, more of a contract than our engagements, and a bride price would be paid. But before the wedding, the man would return to his home. He He would prepare a room or apartment in his family home, his father's house, perhaps adding a structure, perhaps subdividing a room that was already there. In any case, this new space would be well-prepared, cleaned, furnished, and beautified for his bride. And when those preparations were completed, he would head back to the bride's village. Word would have been sent ahead so that the wedding party would gather, hopefully prepared with lamps with enough oil in case the bridegroom was late. Is this sounding familiar? He would then return home with his bride, often to a village she'd never been to before, but that was all right, because the groom would know the way. After all, it was his hometown and his home. That's the second love story, story of Jewish marriages at the time of Jesus. The third one, the love story beneath all love stories, the best love story, which was begun before creation and lasts eternally. This is the love story referenced by Jesus under girding John 14. So I encourage you to turn to that. John 14, it's on page 901 of your Pew Bibles, I believe. But before we look at it, I want us to remember something. I want us to remember that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, God often refers to the people of Israel his chosen people, as his bride. With himself, obviously, as the bridegroom. And then Jesus shows up and refers to himself as the bridegroom over and over again. Now you sometimes hear people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But that is to misunderstand what he is constantly doing. He's taking biblical images of God and applying them directly to himself. To say that Jesus never claimed to be God is the rough equivalent of saying that somebody who came on the scene who called himself the leader of the free world and the commander in chief was not claiming to be president. If he uses those images for himself, that's the claim he's making. So let's look at John 14. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. It's argued by many that the death itself was the pain of the bride price. And we come to these familiar words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying the most remarkable thing to His disciples and to us. First of all, He loves us the way a groom loves his bride. But He's also saying that it's as certain that He will come back for us as a groom has prepared a place for his bride would be to go to get her. He's going to come back. He's going to get us. Now we could spend all morning on the wonder, the splendor, the grace of that love story. The best love story ever. It's a love story that we are to be the storytellers of. But I want us to consider some issues for us as storytellers. Look at John 14.6. In response to Thomas, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I want you to observe that in the context of this marriage tradition analogy that Jesus is using in which he's promising his return, it's self-evident that the groom would know the way to his home, that he would be, for the bride's sake, the way to the home. And of course, the only way the bride is going to get into the father's house is by marrying the son. A woman couldn't just show up at a house and barge her way in and claim an apartment by herself. She would have had to be married to the son and brought there by him. No one can come into the father's house without being connected to the son, it's at the heart of the analogy. Peter uses another biblical image about Jesus in Acts chapter 4. He says this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the issue for us as storytellers is that that idea is radically countercultural. We are in a culture that really does believe as a core value that always lead to God or you can't get to God at all. But if there are many ways to God, we have a problem with the story of Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he says to his father there as he's facing death, if there's any way that this cup of death, this cup of suffering could pass from me, let that be. And if there were many ways to God, it would have been a cruel joke of the father to tell him to go to the cross. Would have been unnecessary. The problem is we want God to accept all our ways of salvation. And that's because we do not realize how deadly our sin is and how only a death will atone for it. Now, if Jesus alone forgives sins as the only Savior, then he must be followed as the only Lord. No one else would have that claim. I like the words of a bishop named J.C. Ryle in the 19th century. He said this, heaven is before us. And Christ the only door into it. Hell beneath us. And Christ alone able to deliver from it. The devil behind us. And Christ the only refuge from his wrath and accusations. The law against us. And Christ alone able to redeem us. Sin weighing us down. And Christ alone able to put it away. Presbyterian minister, I mentioned a minute ago, Tim Keller in New York City, talked about the fact that when people wanted to join his church or be baptized, he would ask them an obvious question, what do you think about Jesus? And he said, by and large, the answer they would give is, well, he is my Lord and Savior. But he'd follow up, Keller would follow up with this question, do you think he is the Lord and Savior for everyone? In other words, that he's the only means of salvation. And he said he often got the response, well, I know he's my Savior and Lord, but maybe God can save people other ways. And Keller would say gently to them, you do not yet know enough. Keep learning. You don't quite have the whole picture yet of who Jesus is. Now, why does this conviction that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God matter so much? Well, obviously, if we don't believe it, we have an anemic view of Jesus, and that leads to a weak faith in him. But also, believing in Christ alone is to have the only hope that will help people who are truly hurting. Some of you know the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. She grew up as an Anglican, incidentally. She became a quadriplegic at age 17 in a diving accident. Years later, she wrote this. I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. She concludes by saying no other religion No other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. It matters to believe it in order to be purveyors of hope. But it also matters because we're new territory, in the culture. We are in a culture that is rapidly becoming post-Christian in its values and philosophies. I don't think it's accidental that the Lord brought to you a rector from Canada in a culture that's been secularized even faster than the United States. I think that is going to be a huge gift to you as you move forward. We're in a culture that's rapidly becoming post-Christian in its values and its philosophies. Less than 25% of Americans are in church on a given Sunday. Varies from area to area, but I know of no place in the country where even 50% are in church. We're in a culture that needs each of us to understand that we are to be missionaries bringing the only true salvation. Each of us telling the love story of Jesus who died and rose again in order to bring us home. So unless we're convinced that Jesus is the Lord and the savior, we cannot be sent as missionaries into this rapidly changing culture. And if we are missionaries, it's really just another word for storytellers. Our mission is to tell God's true love story. Let me add a footnote here because of it being First Communion Sunday. If parents don't raise their children to be missionaries to the culture around them, those children will be converted by the culture. It's as simple as that. And if, parents, and if children don't see their parents praying for and trying to reach people with the gospel, those children will not become missionaries themselves. Now, we also need to correct a misunderstanding about what it means to be a storyteller, what it means to be someone who shares the gospel. We often think that we don't know enough to talk to people about Jesus. That when we become mature, when we have enough information, then we can reach out but I was struck by this line from a book called No Silver Bullets by a man named Daniel M. He said, I've discovered that when you focus on developing mature disciples, you do not necessarily find yourself with an army of missionaries. However, when you focus on developing missionary disciples, you will always get mature disciples. Our feeble, efforts to share the gospel with others, force us to learn more about it, force us to learn more about prayer, force us to, to bend on God more. The reaching out comes first, not last. But we often have that backwards. If we want to have mature children, mature in the gospel, we have to raise them up as missionary children. Well, the gospel is the truest love story about the only bridegroom who can bring us home, and there are many who are waiting around us to hear this story, this best love story. We need to get over our issues as storytellers and begin to share it. And finally, I wanna talk about one audience for the story. There is a prime audience all around us to reach with the gospel. Very very simply put, it is the lonely. Former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote about what he calls the loneliness epidemic. He was writing in health terms. He made the case that the greatest health issue we face as a culture is not any particular disease, but loneliness itself, because those who are lonely tend to have worse medical outcomes. But he wrote this. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization. Yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Now think of Jesus reaching out. He reached out to isolated, lonely people. He reached out to corrupt tax collectors, to women with immoral lifestyles, to lepers, to the paralyzed, to widows. We may have other forms of isolation today, but we are surrounded by loneliness. Mother Teresa said the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but she said the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. She concluded by saying there's a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. So what would happen? if each and every one of you decided that a key part of your primary mission in this world would be to take the time to be with lonely people, including each other. Now I know that's a hard ask. The most expensive thing in our lives is our time. What are we willing to sacrifice to be with those who are alone? We are surrounded. Over 50% of American adults are single. To give you a sense of contrast, in 1950, that number was 22%. Now, Jesus understands isolation and loneliness from his own personal experience. He was misunderstood by his disciples. He was abandoned abandoned by them in death, with one exception. On the cross... He experienced the greatest loneliness possible. While he was naked to the human eye, from God's perspective, he was clothed in our sin. Cutting himself off from the Father, somehow within the Trinity, God taking the heartbreak of sin on himself. And hence Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please understand in Jewish tradition, if you get the beginning of a psalm, the assumption is that the hearers will download the rest. The next line is, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus experienced the ultimate loneliness on the cross so that we could be with him. And we're sent to be his witnesses. And there's one key idea I want to concentrate on in closing. I want us to understand withness. We talk about Christian witness. But withness is being with others. It's at the heart of the gospel. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation 3.20, the familiar verse, listen to it. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. And he with me. In the image of fellowship. But we're called to be his followers who do the same thing he does, which is call people to be with us. Now, if you haven't opened the door to invite Jesus to lead your life, if you haven't invited him in, please take today as the day to respond to that invitation. But if you have, begin practicing withness with the lonely around you. It's a good short book called Surprise the World, Five Habits of Highly Missional People. We all need to know it. One of those habits is one of my favorite things. Eat, I can do that. But the author means eat with others who are outside of the church. Maybe they're Christians that are unchurched. Maybe they're uh, not yet Christians. Take the time to eat with the lonely. Listen to their problems. Get to know them. Care about them. Practice withness. If the greatest poverty of the West is loneliness, then we're called to be the people who live with others. Loving someone is to spend time with them. To misquote an old rock song, you can only truly love the one you're with. Close with two stories. One is about a young lady named Sarah Ma. She came to uh, Florida State University as a freshman. From a Chinese background, she's a Chinese American. Her father is a Muslim, her mother is a Buddhist. Had no serious contact with the church growing up. But some students in her dorm got to know her, and one of them eventually invited her to a Bible study. She didn't quite know what was going on, but she came along, at the end of the time, somebody said, does anybody have anything that we could be praying for? And Sarah answered, well, I've got a terrible cold, or words to that effect. Thinking that, you know, later they would, you know, during the week or something, they would pray for her, but they prayed for her right there. Now, she wasn't instantly healed, but her testimony is I had never had anyone pray for me before in my life. And the love of that group for her had her intention and had her attention. And eventually, uh, they invited her to hear a speaker who shared the gospel with her, and she came racing into the kingdom. And as a new Christian, not a fully Informed Christians, she began to reach out with with the gospel to others and reach many of her friends, many of whom were Asian American. Sarah is going to be the youth delegate from our diocese for GAFCON, the Global Anglican Futures Conference, June in Jerusalem. Somebody spent the time to be with her close with this story, also a true story, a story of a student named Robert in a special ed class of a teacher I know. She used to play a game with them, a true-false game, and she would give a series of statements and they'd identify them as true or false. And she said to Robert, a banana is yellow. And Robert said, true. She said, a dog says meow. Robert said, false. Then she said, a man can eat breakfast alone. And Robert said, false. She was a little perplexed. She repeated the statement, he said false again. So then she played it out. She said, Robert, track with me for a minute. A man is upstairs, he gets up in the morning, he goes down to the kitchen, he gets a bowl, he pours cereal into the bowl, he pours milk into the uh, bowl with the cereal, takes a spoon, he starts eating. A man can eat breakfast alone. And again, Robert said, false. So finally, she said, Robert, why do you say that? And Robert said, no one should ever eat alone. We were made for relationships with God and with each other. Part of what's going on in the Eucharist is a reminder that we are not alone because we're at table together. We're with the Lord and with each other. So the challenge I have for you today is, are you ready to be storytellers of the best story ever, to be missionaries to a culture that's forgetting the gospel? Will you ask the Lord Jesus to teach you new ways to be the church? Will you allow Paul and team and the other leaders here to teach you how to change to be more like Jesus? Will you reach out at whatever cost to the post-Christians around you? Will you not only invite them to this church home, but into your homes probably first? Will you tell them the story of stories, the truest of stories, the story of resurrection, of rescue and of salvation? Ask the Lord Jesus, the savior, the bridegroom who will bring you home, who loves you as the father has loved him. Ask him, Jesus, what will it mean for me to be a storyteller, to be a missionary, to be a witness, practicing witness. Let's bow our heads for prayer. I'm gonna close with a collect that is from our morning prayer service. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretch out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen.